them. Their father was furious. Why does it have to go to a double feature? Isn't one movie enough? I couldn't explain it to him. The girls were still girls. They were supposed to have fun. He was beside himself. He was terribly jealous, and so was I. Evidently picking up glimmers of information from snatches of grown-up talk, Joan and Mimi seemed troubled by the family conflict over Rugger. The girls were very upset that the adults were at odds, Tia remembered. They thought they were doing something wrong because they were happy, or Rugger and I were doing something wrong because we were in love and enjoying it. I was afraid they were getting the impression that men and sisters don't mix, and I guess they did. But Mimi and Joni were fine. As long as they got the same kind of ice cream and the scoops were the same size. As they grew, Joan and Mimi drew closer, and their older sister turned inward. When Mimi was very young, Pauline and I hated her, Joan remembered. Mimi was the youngest and the prettiest, so Pauline and I conspired against her. That didn't last long. Pauline was a loner. When she was eleven, Pauline built a treehouse and spent much of her time between school and sleep alone there. When Joan asked if she could play with her, Pauline replied, Sure, you can be the daddy. Go to work. Bye. At mealtime, Pauline would construct a barricade of cereal boxes around her place setting. After Pauline built that treehouse, she never really came out, said their mother. Mimi and Joni discovered each other. They were very different, like my sister and me in a way, but very tight, like us. Because young Joan could draw, mainly clever, skillful sketches of her family, her classmates, and herself, she was considered the artistic one. Joan also had a quick, sassy wit and a knack for imitating voices. Joni was so funny, said Mimi. She made you laugh so hard you almost didn't mind that it was at your own expense. A lovely girl with deep, liquid brown eyes and an easy, disarming smile, Joan thought of herself as unattractive. Surgery to remove a benign tumor had left a tiny scar on her torso that she saw as monstrous. She endured schoolyard taunts because of her Mexican surname and dark skin, and she coveted her little sister's fairer, delicate beauty. Mimi was the pretty one, said Dr. Bias. She looked like an angel. All three of my girls, they were all beautiful. Pauline, Joan, too, beautiful. But not like Mimi. She had physical confidence and poise. Under Tia's patronage, Mimi had been studying dance since the age of five. She struggled with books, however, because she was an undiagnosed dyslexic, and her schoolwork suffered. Mimi envied her sister Joan's way with words and her ease in adult company. Joan was very jealous of Mimi's looks. It was very hard for Joan. Joan always thought she was ugly, said their mother. I think Mimi was just as jealous of Joan, because Joan was so talented. They were both talented, but I don't know. I just know they loved each other so much I thought sometimes they'd kill each other. The girls held hands constantly. Once, as they were walking, Mimi squeezed so tightly that her fingernails dug into her sister's palm and blood smeared onto the sides of their dresses. 
Encouraged by one of Albert's university friends, the Bias family started attending Quaker meetings, and they always brought the girls, all of whom endured the sessions dutifully and absorbed elements of the Quaker ideals that they understood and liked. It was something we had to do, and it was a chore, Mimi would remember. But all three of us seemed to get the basic idea that peace was a good thing. We basically made faces at each other at the meetings. Still, one speaker succeeded in capturing Joan's attention, a small, frail, monkish fellow named Ira Sandpearl. Moved by his lecture on pacifism, Joan asked him for advice in applying his principles to her life. I asked him how I could learn to get along with my sister Mimi, Joan recalled. She was very beautiful, and we fought all the time. It seemed so endless and unkind. Ira said to pretend that it was the last hour of her life, as he pointed out it might well be. So I tried out this plan, and Mimi reacted strangely at first, the way anyone does when a blueprint is switched on him without his being consulted. I learned to look at her and as a result to see her for the first time. I began to love her. All three girls showed interest in music. Pauline had taken some piano lessons and had practiced regularly, but froze when it came to playing for her teacher. She and Joan, who had also studied piano briefly, both learned how to play the ukulele from a Stanford colleague of Albert Baez, Paul Kirkpatrick. He taught Joni and me... The same thing, on that ukulele, the same day, remembered Pauline. I became so concerned in doing my little three chords correctly. I didn't want anybody to hear me at all until I had it perfect. And Joni picked up the thing and just started strumming away. And if the chords weren't quite right, it didn't matter. She played it for the people right off, you know. And then she just went on playing because everybody clapped and cheered and said, Oh, isn't it great? And me, I kept practicing my three little chords until they were perfect. I guess they didn't think I was very good because they didn't even hear me. But it was like that. Joan was, ta-da, center stage. During one of these living room performances, Joan decided to sing, too. Singing in the house while I played the ukulele, that was the first time I remember people saying, Oh, you have a very nice voice, Joan recalled. Mimi scored high on a third-grade music aptitude test and took violin lessons for several years. I did very well, but I was really more interested in singing, said Mimi. But that was more of Joni's thing. Late in the spring of 1954, when Joan and Mimi were 13 and 9, Tia and Rugger took them to a concert in the gym of Palo Alto High School. It was an informal program of songs and talk to raise funds for the California Democratic Party, featuring Pete Seeger. Tia considered herself politically aware and liberal, like Big Joan and Albert, and she wanted Joan and Mimi to hear Seeger. I liked him very much, Tia said. I thought if I still had some influence on those girls, they should hear something they weren't going to hear on the radio. Indeed, Seeger could not be found on any of the country's commercial stations, nor on records from the major labels, in concert halls, or in nightclubs. He had been blacklisted in 1952 for his association with communism. Along with Woody Guthrie and Huddy Leadbelly Leadbetter and folklorist Alan Lomax, Seeger had been a central figure in the boomlet of folk-style recordings and performances between the Depression years and the beginning of the Second World War.
By 1950, Seeger, as a member of the Weavers, along with singer-guitarist Fred Hellerman and singers Lee Hayes and Ronnie Gilbert, had helped break folk into the pop mainstream with the quartet's hit records of On Top of Old Smokey, Wimoway, and Lead Belly's composition Goodnight Irene, among others. The accomplishment carried irony for a socialist such as Seeger, a demonstration of his music's appeal to the masses through commercial means that brought sizable profits to the record industry, as well as to the weavers. With the rise of the Cold War and the intensification of anti-communist sentiment in the early 1950s, Seeger found himself liberated from the irony of mass popularity and economic success. He was no longer welcome in most concert halls and nightclubs, and returned to performing in community centers, schools, and private clubs for modest sums, usually under the auspices of organizations associated with the left. At Palo Alto High School, the political component of his presentation was one of implication. It seemed to me that I could make a point if I made it gently, Seeger explained. I suppose you could say what I was doing was a cultural guerrilla tactic. I sang songs about people from all walks of life, and I talked about how anyone from any walk of life could sing this kind of song himself. What I was getting at was the idea of flip-flopping the power structure, so every individual had some power, rather than all the power being centered on a few organizations, or just one. I said, sing with me. Sing by yourself. Make your own music. Pick up a guitar or just sing a cappella. We don't need professional singers. We don't need stars. You can sing. Join me now. The idea surely ran counter to the prevailing cultural tenets of glamour and professionalism.